Hello, everybody. This is Ryan. And this is Avery. And we are from the Frame by Frame King Crimson podcast. And you are listening to Pods Like Us. And welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Quibell, known to my friends as Marv. And this time, uh, as a surprise for people, hopefully, I have a co-host in the shape of Greg from Bad Council. Thanks for being here, Greg. It's my pleasure. It's an honor to be here, and I couldn't be more excited about today's topic. I think it's great to, to have you here because of both of us being fans of the subject of the show that we're talking with. And we are talking with today the uh, host of the show, Something for Nothing, the Rushcast, and they are Steve and Jerry. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. So how were you both introduced to the world of podcasting, Steve? Well, I come from a radio background, so uh, I deal with podcasting in my line of work, and I also listen to podcasts quite a bit. My favorite podcast is Radio Lab uh, from NPR. Mm. It's great, and I also listen to ESPN's Baseball Tonight podcast. Those are mm. those are two of my favorites. But I listen to lots of podcasts, and always wanted to do one. And Jerry, we had talked about that a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, we talked about it on a trip. We were going to see um, Death Cab for Cutie. We went out mm. to Colorado. Nice. To see Red Rocks. Nice, we beautiful driving venue. Around. Yeah, it was great. And we drove to Utah for the day before. And we were just listening. I don't know what we were listening to. We were actually were listening to Rush, <laughs> now that mm. I think about it. But we were talking about podcasts for about an hour or more. We just said... You know, we should do a podcast because we both love podcasts. My introduction to podcasts is just as a listener. So I probably started, I think the first podcast I listened to was the Judge Judge, Judge, Judge John Hodgman podcast. Hmm. Whenever that that started. I don't even, it's been a long time. So I think it was the first one I listened to. Um, And mostly I do like science stuff and murder podcasts. Hmm. Science and murder. (laughs) (laughs) Two great topics. Jerry, do you listen to the uh, Unexplained? No. That's a good one. It's is a it? British podcast, and it uh, takes some unsolved things. Some, some, sometimes they're science, sometimes they're supernatural, and he, the guy has a very uh, 
ambient like voice to me. So it's it's great to fall asleep to. Sometimes it takes me three or four days to get through a single episode. It's <laughs> good. I'll give it a shot. So from going from being uh, listeners to podcast, where did the idea come from of starting your own podcast? And this is probably a stupid question considering, but how did you hit upon the idea of making a podcast about Rush? Well, as Jerry mentioned, we were driving from Utah to Denver and we were talking about podcasts and we thought, well, what podcast can we do? And it just occurred to us that we had spent most of our trip talking about Rush. So this is it. This is the podcast. It was kind of like the Seinfeld moment, right, Jerry? Mm. It was. It was a lot like that. I think we were talking about kid gloves. Mm -hmm. We were listening to um, Grace Under Pressure and we're talking about kid gloves. And Steve didn't, I don't think you knew what the phrase kid gloves meant. No, no, I still really don't. (laughs) (laughs) So I was telling him what, what a kid glove is and what it means. And I swear it was just like, wow, we could talk about that. Like I, I just turned to him. I'm like, we, this could be it. This could be the podcast. Just talking about Rush, the things that, you know, there's so much to talk about in mm-hmm. so many Rush songs. Just little details about the titles or what one line means. We, we've talked about one sentence for, you know, five minutes. And we were talking about Rush the whole time. So there you go. That was That was the idea. And then, of course... We did it, which was the strange part. It's one thing having an idea. It's another thing just jumping in with two feet. Well, the interesting thing is, I mean, like like a lot of really good shows, whether they be podcast or television shows or radio shows, uh, when you've got more than one host, is that you've got different uh, characters. Like with Greg's show, Bad Counsel, you've got the different characters there. So you two approach the subject slightly from different angles where yourself, Jerry, you'll look deeply into the lyrics whereas steve goes into other areas i think that's what helps with the with making the show as good as it is is because you've got those different characters and you're looking at it from those different angles but as fans as well it's not a uh it's not like um, a critic or professional looking at things it's a fan looking at it as any other fan would look at the subject Right. And we don't pretend that we're experts about Rush. We're just two regular Rush fans who love the music and want to talk about it. We don't, we're not experts and we know that, right, Jar? Yeah, that's, I think that's, it's pretty <laughs> obvious that we're not experts. I think at the beginning, we, I, I just assumed um, that people would just agree. I, I don't know. With my take on things, sometimes, and sometimes they don't. That was a, I was just shocked. And first of all, that anybody listened, but second of all, that people write in and, you know, not that I'm shocked that they disagree. People always disagree with me, but I'm just like, I always just thought that the, you know, Rush had a certain kind of meaning to people. And and especially to me, I had to think about these songs a lot. I think about what the lyrics mean and everything. And when people have different interpretations, it was, it was kind of eye opening actually. Even some of like the, the biggest songs, people have different ideas of what that song might be about you guys are being self-deprecating though when you don't call yourself experts you mean i i'm a huge rush fan <laughs> but i've listened to several of your episodes and i was talking to my wife about this show this morning and i was like 
she's like, oh, you're going to do fine, honey. And I was like, oh, I hope I don't embarrass myself in front of these Rush fans because they're more knowledgeable than me. She's like, oh, you know so much about Rush. I'm like, yeah, but these guys are like the 98th percentile of the curve. You know, there there might be some experts out there, but they're few and far between. And I actually use the analogy that you guys are to Rush fandom what I am to Seinfeld fandom. So. Well, I don't, I don't. I really disagree with that. I don't think we're experts. I mean, J- Jared, seriously, just talking to our listeners who email us, they know yeah. so much more about the band than we do. Yeah, we're it's, constantly it's being corrected. Crazy. I know, yeah, but, but, I, but oh, go ahead, Jerry. I'm sorry. I was going to say the people um, from the very first episode, we got emails telling us the stuff we got wrong, the dates we got wrong, the songs we got wrong, the set list we got wrong. This is wrong. This date. So we actually we kind of shy away from specifics. I think over time we were just like, let's not like mention a year. It's not even go <laughs> yeah. close to years. <laughs> this song was recorded in this year or this month. I'm not even going to touch that anymore. But let's face it, guys. The the the, the fans who are going to listen to a Rush fan cast, and I'm one of them, and then mm-hmm. write in to correct you guys. They are in that upper two percent. Oh, yeah. So, oh you know, yeah. so you're more knowledgeable. You're an expert to the 98% of Rush fans like me who consider themselves diehards. But of course, yeah, I'm not uh, fact checking podcasts and, and writing in to get uh, letters to the editor. You know, so I, I, I was impressed with your knowledge and your guests breaking down your uh, your personal top 10 lists. Um, I was like, yeah, that's cool. And, and I'm definitely going to go back and listen to more episodes. And then, you know, with that knowledge, take a second listen or a you know, 2000th listen to some of those songs. And, and, and just, it's cool to hear your perspective. People who obviously love Rush the way I do uh, have thought about Rush and, um, you know, break it down. It's, it's fun to listen to. Well, it's, it's great that you say that because one of the best things that happens is when people write in and say that they hadn't listened to a song in a while or they didn't mm-hmm. like this song or they didn't really like this album. And then they listen to us talk about it. And then they gained a new appreciation just from the things that Steve and I have said about it. And that's, that's a very high compliment. Well, the first thing I'm doing after we record today is I'm going to go listen to Xanadu. So. Oh, nice. There you go. And, and we're gaining a new appreciation for Russia's music just from talking about it, too. I mean, I'm learning things just from researching the songs and the albums before we do the podcast. Mm-hmm. So uh, I love Rush even more than I did two years ago when we started this, which is hard to believe. Well, recently on one of the episodes, was it um, was it Test for Echo or something where where Jerry said that he'd not listened to the album other than the one time he heard it when it came out. Mm-hmm. He'd not listened to it over all those years. And then because he's listened to it for the show, he suddenly realised that he loves the album and there's so mm-hmm. much about the album that he likes. And and it's just that he's had, got a new appreciation for that. Is, that. is that right, Jerry? Was it that album or was it another one? It might have been Vapor Trails. It was Test for Echo. I really didn't listen to Test for Echo that much. Um, But it might have been Vapor Trails because, again, I think it was the mix that threw me off when I first heard it. And I didn't really care for it. I saw them on tour, that tour. The songs were great. But I never, it just was not a go-to album for me at all. But listening to it again and really trying to put myself in the headspace of when the album was written and what it was written about. Yeah, it's it became one of my favorites. It's hard to say it's in the top ten because the top ten is crammed full of so many good albums. It's really hard to say, but it definitely jumped up in my estimation. 
Steve, was it you who was talking about on a recent episode, um, The Garden? Yes. Oh, I yeah. love that song. It's, it it's amazing. And like hearing Jerry talk, you know, I've, I've made some notes. And, you know, one of the things I love about Rush is I, I kind of feel like as I was, a, I was a child when I started listening to them. But I feel like as my life progresses, I evolved as a person, you know, mm-hmm. in, in my life changed and I took on different perspectives that the music meant something different, different to me. And so with Neil's passing, mm-hmm. you know, um, I haven't listened to The Garden since Neil's passed. It's not one a song I listen to often, but I'm looking forward to listening to it because I know that the meaning of things will kind of evolve over time as well. And that's that's one of the things about great art, right, is that, you know, the, the you, you hold on to the, the good meanings, but it, it also, even though Neil's gone, um, his art lives and, and takes on different meanings as we get older. I would say that the line from the garden may be my favorite rush lyric. We haven't talked about this yet, Jer, but the measure of a life is a measure of love and respect. Mm. So hard to earn so easily burned. I mean, there's so much in that line to absorb and, and for people to live by really. You, you could almost imagine that if, if, if Getty was to ever sing that song again, uh, at some point, you could almost uh, think that Getty would have a an added um, emotion to it now that that Neil's gone, and perhaps he he might feel Neil within the song, and that would add that sort of emotion to him because it's an it's an incredibly emotional song, um, and um, yeah, it, it was it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! It, it actually made me teary the first time I heard the song. To be honest, because it's got that so much in there, but because they are a band who do music that is, should we say, epic in nature, anyway, and straddles different uh, genres and mixes and matches uh, so much. I think that's why their music works so well with Neil's lyrics is because it can weave its way through all of those different changes and emotions that Neil inherently has in his writing. He definitely has a way of um, tapping into something. I mean, it's kind of, he says the things that are true to him, but of course they resonate with other people because, you know, they're true. (laughs) <laughs> maybe not true in you know, capital T true, but true in a way, emotionally true. Um, even on some of the older songs, you know, which aren't necessarily very personal in nature as he got, uh, you know, into like uh, power windows and beyond, they became a little more personal. But when you start singing about personal things, you know, you realize that other people have the same experiences, not exactly the same, you know, day-to-day experience but the same emotional experience over different things and the garden is a perfect example because not only does it does it finish off the album in a perfect way because it's about this character but the whole album is kind of about the band and their struggle to become whatever they are and the song also just kind of puts a bow on this character's life but also on the band and also on the members of the band you know what i mean They've got a lot of love and respect, and that's really all you can kind of hope for in life. For me as a fan, 
you know, the I think the reason I get emotional about Rush, I mean, I love the music and I love the, I'm a word guy like you, Jared, the lyrics really draw me in, but it, it really, I have such a close connection and an affinity for like their friendship, you know, growing up in the suburbs, like I did kind of in an industrial city of the U S and, and being lower middle-class middle-class at best. Um, you know, I, I had such friends that grew up with me listening to Rush and to know that these guys like Getty and Alex's story, you know, that documentary that came out a few years ago that shows them around the kitchen table with their moms and mm -hmm. talking about dropping out of high school. You know, it just, it just was so heartwarming. Um, and I compare it to the lifelong friendships that I've had from, from growing up and, and Rush was a, a big part of those friendships. And so, you know, that's what makes, um, them so special to me. That's that's where I get my emotional affinity to to their music and to who they are as people. And it really is amazing that three guys could stay in a band together for 40 years and love each other just as much mm. the last day that they did the first day. And that to me is the most amazing thing about the band. Forget the music, just that they're friends. And they always get the music, Steve. What are you talking about? We wouldn't even. No, you don't. You don't get the music. We can't do that. <laughs> You'd <laughs> be out of a job. We don't really do that. that. Mm. Yeah, really. Hey, it's Gil from the Mind. Today's Mind Culture and Social Podcast, and you're listening to Pods Like Us. Us. So controversial question for you guys, and, and I've fielded it from my, I consider them lesser Rush fans. They're fans, but they're not as, <laughs> not as good as me. Um, you know, and, and you, you guys talked about it, Marv talked about it, you know, now that Neil's passed. You know, I remember the documentary that came out after, you know, when Neil wrote Ghost Rider after he lost his wife and his daughter. Uh, and how Getty and Alex were like, well, we thought this is it. You know, um, this is it. We're done. You know, because we don't know if Neil will ever come back to us. And he did. Um but now that he's really gone, um, you know, I, I was driving home on the Friday that Neil passed. See, I get emotional talking about Neil. And, uh, and I remember my friends texting me condolences. And, uh, and the, but then immediately they were like, what about Mike Portnoy as a, as a replacement for Neil? You know, and I, and, and I couldn't even hear it at that point. The thought of Getty and, and Alex <clears throat> with somebody else. And I know, you know, they had their original drummer, but it just was... I couldn't comprehend it, but as time passes, I, I guess I warm to the idea just because I want Getty and Alex to be able to express themselves musically and play, you know, so where do you guys stand on the, the idea that Rush is done or would you be open to somebody, you know, never filling those shoes, but um, allowing Eddie and, and or Getty and Alex to continue? Well, personally, I'd say no, I'd rather not see them play with somebody else um because that person you know would be playing the part of you know the understudy nobody wants to go see the understudy first of all um but also if they were to do something i would happily go see it mm. you know what i mean i trust them as artists right and as people to only do genuine things Right, their albums have always been genuine to who mm -hmm. they are or to where they are in their lives. Even if people didn't like them at the time or they haven't stood the test of time, maybe a couple of them. Um, if they want to do it, 
I'm all for it. I'd support him 100%. I would like to see Rush. I mean, I would like to see Getty and Alex play together again, but I don't think they should call it Rush. Mm. Call it Lee Lifeson. Call it something else. The only way I think they should perform as Rush is Jerry and I have talked about this. If they did an acoustic show, mm. just just Getty and Alex, no drums. I mean, I know that's not really Rush without the drums, but when they did Resist without Neil, Neil would take a break, and Alex and Getty would do Resist, and it was fantastic. Mm. I think they could do smaller venues, a set of certain Rush songs, kind of as a tribute to Neil, maybe for charity, cancer research, something like that. I think Rush fans would love it. Yeah, I definitely would love to see that. And probably would get a lot of um, older gems. You know, oh, you, sure. You, yeah. you couldn't obviously do Xanadu or Tom Sawyer that way, but you could probably do a whole bunch of different songs acoustic. Lakeside Park? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just play that for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> but you could do The Garden. You could do Resist. You could do Lakeside Park. You could do Losing It, heart. maybe. Closer yeah. to the Heart. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Rivendell? Rivendell, Ty Shan, Ty Shan. Yeah, make Jerry happy. Yeah, really. <laughs> One of my top ten, as I was creating my mental top ten list, listening to you guys today, that they could do in that acoustic sense, I think, is I I love Nobody's Hero, you know, from Counterparts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's lots of songs. That'd be that another one. Do. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful score to that as well that they did, orchestral, really nice on that Nobody's Hero. Yeah. Uh, you, you reminded me that recently when I was listening to one of your episodes, you mentioned about Resist. And I actually thought, and I probably put it in my blog as well, actually, that you, you made me think, what if on the original album Resist had just been an acoustic number as opposed to the big production? Because you're right, the it's almost as though, to me personally, that acoustic treatment lends it a bit more almost gravitas or or more feeling in a sense because it's it's just giving it that laid back approach which suits the lyrics per- perfectly and it will almost be a nod back to the days when they did used to just do like on fly by night where you'd have all these mm. big grandiose numbers like bite or and then suddenly you'd have a laid back uh as i've mentioned rivendell so it, it would harken back to that sort of thing if they'd have done Resist as just an acoustic number on the album. I agree, because I, I was never a big fan of the instrumentation of that song. I would listen to it because I, the, the lyrics were perfect, but you know the keyboards, the piano part didn't really do it for me. Um, but then when they, they did it live... And you know it's, it's funny because it's one of the only Rush songs I can actually play on guitar. It's very easy to play. <laughs> you know, I think what we're discovering, what Sorry. we're discovering, guys, is listening to the live albums that Rush really took a lot of the songs from their studio albums and perfected them on the live albums and in their live shows. And Resist is just another example of that. And there's so many. We talked about on different stages, Jared Bravado, right? Yeah. It was so much better on different stages than it was mm. in the studio version. Not that the studio version was bad. It's just they they added something to it live. Yeah, it's like um, a whole... Which which concert film is it from um, the version of After Image? That I, I love the um, 
the live version of that has got so much more to it. I mean, I love the original version from the album, don't get me wrong, but there's something about the live version of that ju- that's just just incredible. But it's it's like a lot, like a, there's a few bands that are like that, though, where they will perform songs live and give them, and those the live treatments make those songs resonate more, a bit like... Mm. Um, uh, Queen, for instance, if Queen do songs live, I think their live performances are just up there in comparison. Like you said, it's almost like the songs grow the more that they play it. So you, you've done the recording, but that's just basically almost like the demo of what you're going to see them play live. Uh, yeah. So the same goes for, for Rush. When they play things live, it's well, got a completely different feel to it altogether. And that's why we go see live music, right? Yeah. It's just, sometimes it's terrible. I mean, that's just, what are you going to do? Sometimes it's transcendent, though. I mean, who knows? These bands, when they get up on stage, it's the, it's the alchemy of the, the band themselves and the, the, the day and the, the atmosphere and the, the people. I've, been to band, I, I've seen bands on one night where it was the most amazing thing because the crowd was respectful and, and great. And I saw them the, the following night and the crowd stunk. And so they weren't as good, you know what I mean? It's it's part of the give and take when they can feed off the off the audience. At least that's why I go see things live. It's kind of like the Mendoza line to me for musicianship. Is there are bands who are you know talented and compelling, but in in a live situation, they're trying to replicate what they did in the studio. Yeah, you know, where other bands transcend and it's like yeah that's that's our departure point what we did in the studio and we loved it but that was a moment in time and we are living breathing evolving musicians and so we're going to take something and without fear um you know i don't improve upon it is the right word but but continue to let it evolve and we Mm -hmm. trust that our fans will appreciate it yeah it's one of the critiques that rush has has been levied against rush for a while is that they would just replicate the studio parts but i don't really think that's true i think that it mm-hmm. comes probably more from the 80s stuff where they had a lot of um triggers synth, and things like yeah. that and the synth stuff that they weren't actually necessarily playing that they would trigger the sounds so they had to be a little more in lockstep i guess with the song as it was written but you know if you listen to like we, we just talked about different stages on the podcast if you listen to that mm-hmm. there's some the solos are different and incredible exactly. and there's lots of extra little tidbits here and there it's fantastic well he's you, you've got things there with, with the different stages where because they're not using the triggers so much you've got um alex for instance will uh almost come up with a new guitar part in in a way because he's trying to get the best or the bits that stand out from the album version and from that he'll pick out the bits from all these different guitars that he's put down he might have put three different parts down rhythm wise and then he's got the lead. So he takes of that what he can to make what he thinks is best for playing it live. But then at the same time, he's improvising around that at the same, you know, mm-hmm. at the same time on stage. He's got that basis and then he'll take that and then add another layer to it. So that's adding something there that wasn't there in the first place with the original recording. Yeah, that's the most amazing thing we found listening to different stages is when you listen to the Power Windows songs and when you listen to the Hold Your Fire songs where a lot of times 
Alex was a little bit lost in the studio version. Hmm. He just brings himself to the forefront live and it's just amazing, especially the hold your fire stuff. I mean, it's, it's a different Alex live than it was in the studio. Don't you think, Jer? Oh yeah, absolutely. Alex was always, he was, I guess he's the kind of, he's the guy who can, who could play around more than, than the other two. You know what I mean? He's always the, the little experimenter up on stage. He's doing weird things. Like he used to do that thing in 20 and um, YYZ. You know what I mean? That in between the, the drum and the bass solo, he would do this thing. He'd be like, yeah. like there's the weirdest noises <laughs> coming out of him. And he'd just make these weird faces and stuff like that. Cause he could just do whatever he wants. Those guys, Gideon and Alex, I think, I mean, Gideon and Neil had to be a little more, you know, holding down the song and he could just go and do whatever he wanted. They had their musical hands full, right? You yeah. Know, right. About Neil with that kid and Getty with, you know, playing the pedal bass and the keyboard. And, you know, Alex was just kind of free ranging out there. Yeah. He was, mm-hmm. you know, it was always great. But you, you could see that Alex was having, having so much fun while he was doing it because <laughs> he would be there doing these things and he'd be laughing out loud. And you can see him just laughing at the same time as doing it because he's having so much fun. Mm-hmm. Just, right. just, freewheeling just going right, i'm going for it mm-hmm. no matter what right and like you said you know getty's there and and neil are there just laying down that rhythm the backing for alex to basically go crazy and do whatever he wants right yeah That's neil nice. was the one neil was the one who would stay true to the studio version for the most part and alex would just go off <laughs> yeah. well that's a great thing of having three people you can negotiate those kinds of things, I suppose. They had four or five. Who knows what would have happened? But, you know, having only one guitarist, he just, you know, tap dance his way through a song however he wanted to. And those guys just played off each other so naturally. You know, you, you know, Marvith, you just said, you know, you talked about Alex and how much fun he's having on stage. And again, for like that emotional connection to the music for me, that, that's like an adolescent's dream for me. It's like, I'm going to have my two best friends or, you know, Alex is my best friend, Getty and Alex. And yeah. we're just going to make music together for the rest of our lives and have fun and be best friends. And, and you know, and what's, you know, and, and there didn't seem to be those rivalries or those and those down moments. And, and just to see three friends who could do that together, that's like, man, that's what that's what we all aspire to when we're adolescents, to be hanging out with our mates 40 years later, doing what we love. Yeah. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, and we're from the Spy Hards Movie Podcast. That's right, and you are listening to Pods Like Us, the podcast that has a license to thrill. But like I was saying earlier on about, you know, your your podcast and, and other shows, it's the same with bands where with, with Rush, you've got three distinct different personalities in that band. And that's what works. And I think that's what kept their friendship close is because there were differences between them, which, but there were also similarities between each other as well. And I think that's what makes for a good friendship. And I think that's also what makes for a good band. Hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, Steve and I, I think you said this before we have, we do have different approaches to the podcast in general. We have different approaches to a lot of things. Steve is um, a little more put together than I am. He's a little more, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I'm, I'm kind of scatterbrained. I'm all over the place sometimes. But Steve's got an actual head on his shoulders that he can 
you know, do things and do them right. Um, and I don't like, we prepare differently for the shows. Um, we, we definitely prepare. I definitely prepare for the shows. Steve like takes more notes. I think, am I, am yeah. I to tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong. No, and you're write, right. Writes down actual questions that he wants to get to these touchstones throughout the, the episode. And I write down ideas. We should talk, you know, if I'll be like, we should talk about, you know, this song and I'll just put the name of the song. That's it. You know what I mean? I don't have any questions to ask, but Steve is able to be more like the ringmaster of the episodes. Whereas he, I'll ask follow-up questions that maybe I didn't even have written down or hadn't thought of before, but Steve's always able to kind of grab something from the, from the answer and turn it back into the actual point of the episode and push the episode (laughs) forward that way. Well, I think that's a good combination for, for a lot of things and in podcasting too. You know, we have been on our show as well. One person kind of driving the show yeah. and allows the mm-hmm. other one, others of us to kind of fill those gaps. And I have notions of what I might say or, or talk about, but it's, it's for me, it's choosing when to speak up and when to remain silent to let somebody else fill that, that air. Um, but, you know, we have our Tim who kind of just leads us on a path, you know, through, uh, through those things. And I think another advantage that Jerry and I have, which uh, I would say 99.9% of podcasts don't, is that we've known each other for 40 years. Mm. So I would think there are very few podcast hosts who have known each other for as long as Jerry and I have. And I think in a lot of cases, we know what the other guy's thinking and and we just get along great, kind of like the guys in Rush. So um, I think that's an advantage for us as well. So what is your history then with, with, with Rush? Go on. I know you mentioned it in your show, but mention it for the people who are listening to this show, you know, how you discovered Rush, Steve. Well, I'll start first since I discovered Rush before Jerry did. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Columbia House Record Club. Oh, yeah. So sure you are, Greg. <laughs> I, 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 I had I, that in the UK. I defrauded them quite a few times. <laughs> That's what everybody <laughs> says. Yeah. How did that company so, stay in business for so long? My, my, my alias was Kevin Snack. That's the name I came up with. I was in college and I thought, you know, what should I call this, this name? Kevin Snack. That's why that was my guy. We have something so anyway, very similar I, in the UK. <laughs> okay. Well, I joined Columbia House and two of the albums I chose were Moving Pictures and Signals. This was probably around 1982. And the first time I heard Moving Pictures, I was blown away. And I was uh, a bassist in a, in a band in high school. And um, me and the drummer in my band just absorbed Rush like crazy after that. And we would play in, in between band practices. We'd, we'd be playing Rush songs. His name is Ron Lipnicki. We actually had him as a guest on our podcast uh, a few months ago. Uh, so we became pretty big Rush fans. We, we weren't huge Rush fans. But in 1986, we were finally old enough. I was 17, I guess, uh, to go to concerts on our mm-hmm. own. So we got tickets to see Rush. And we got four tickets and we didn't have anybody to drive us. So we asked Jerry and that's where he jumps into the story. So Jerry came with us to the show and Jerry, you, you can pick it up from here. Yeah. And I had never listened to Rush. I probably had heard Tom Sawyer on the radio, maybe 
I certainly wouldn't have picked them out of a lineup or anything. Um, so I went to the show just because why not, right? And I don't know what, what day day of the week it was, but I was up for <laughs> Live anything. Live music out of the house, right? Right, get them get out of the house. So so we just we just went and it was the most fantastic thing I'd ever seen. I've never had a concert experience like that where I went in not knowing anything about the band. Literally like, okay, I'm I'm just here. I'm the ride. You know what I mean? Um, and walking out a lunatic. I walked out of that place a lunatic. <laughs> it was the strangest experience of my life to 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 see what I had seen. I just I couldn't and and from that second on, it was it was that was it. I was in love with Rush. So was, was that and my appreciation? Sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say. So would that be both of yours' um, first experience of seeing a band that uh, are seen as a progressive style band that you that have progressive tendencies to their music and and whose music straddles all these different things and goes from one scene to another to another to another? Is this your first experience of that? For me, definitely. For me, definitely. Who do, who had we seen before that, Jar? I had I had only seen. I think I had seen you two, and maybe Ozzy. Did we see Ozzy before that, or was that after Metallica? Uh, that, Ozzy. Yes, that was before. That was nineteen eighty five. I had seen yeah. Judas Priest, Dio, <laughs> um, and Ozzy. So yeah, the first progressive experience for sure for me. And I have to say, I'm not a, a huge progressive rock fan. <laughs> You know, I mean, I liked uh, old Genesis and uh, yes, yes yeah. but uh, as a as a diehard prog fan, I'm not really a diehard prog fan, but that's where Rush comes in, right? They're not; they had their prog years, but they certainly aren't. I don't consider them to be, you know, like a prog band. Mm-hmm. Certainly not now. From you know eighty eighty four on, I don't think they were anywhere near prog. Then again, I don't have the the prog history to really make that statement as declarative as I would like to be. Jerry, is that a um, disclaimer so you don't get any letters? Yes. Know, from the prog de- experts? <laughs> yep. That is uh, actually, What do you CYA. mean that they weren't prog after 84? Let me point to these facts. Yeah, let me see. This oh, song yeah, was six minutes that. long. <laughs> um, so, but that's the great thing about Rush is that they did, they walked, they straddled that line between rock and prog. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like they aren't like other, we've talked to some people, some drummers other musicians about rush's odd time signatures which just seems to be the the hallmark of, of prog if anyone's going to point to anything about what prog is is like going they play in you know seven eight time or whatever but with rush you know you don't really catch it i've said this before you don't you don't notice them that much as with other prog bands other prog bands you're like oh yeah this is in a funky time if you listen to some yes songs it's like you're like what is going on in this song there's definitely mm-hmm. something going on in this song that's you know throwing off my rhythm and that's the, the point of it but rush will do the same thing but they don't throw off the rhythm they they still have like a rock uh thread running through these proggy songs and maybe that's why you know Someone like me, who isn't a big prog fan, can still enjoy the, the super proggy stuff. Before we I think what elevated them for me is that um, the lyrics. You know, for me, I, I did like. I wasn't a prog guy, but I liked Rush, and I, I mean, uh, yes, and I liked Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. 
among a, a bunch of bands, but for me, they were so literate. That that's what really drew me into Rush was I was a I was a book nerd. I liked to read, yeah. and the idea that somebody was a rock star and he was basing songs on <laughs> Ayn Rand books, I was like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, look at that. Right. This is this is tailor made for me, right? And just the 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 subject matter, songs for sure. Yeah. Just it's the the craziest subject matter ever for songs. But like cool. natural science, right? Yeah. <laughs> natural science. Even stuff like uh, Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. What kind of song is that to write? Who writes a song like <laughs> about the Manhattan Project? Well, I saw like By Tour and the Snow Dog on a right. cassette label. I was like, wow, that's, I want to hear what that is. I can't imagine. Yeah, what, is, but, what could that possibly mm-hmm. be? That, that, that's, that's one of my top 10 songs, actually, by Rush. Really? By Tour, yeah. I, I just love the, the music to that and how it changes and... Um, and then you have the breakdown where it'll stop and you'll get so many beats. And then the next bit, it's a beat less. And then it's a beat less and it's a beat less. And then you get that long distorted, um, oh, is, is that a bass or something? That or whatever it is yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what that is. I just thought when I first heard that, I thought, what the hell is that? I don't know what it is, <laughs> but I love it. There's something yeah. about that that I love. And yeah. uh, it, it brings me to my uh, something... Interesting when Greg was talking about reading, because so my first experience with Rush would be when I was a kid, and uh, a friend of mine I was uh, actually staying over at his, and he had he had all sorts. I mean, he introduced me to metal, like so. I'd go there, and before I'd been there, I'd never known any Black Sabbath, no Deep Purple. He introduced me to Rainbow, and then and then when that came on, and suddenly. Uh, Rivendell came on from the Fly By Night, and this song's going on, and I'm thinking, this sounds like that book I'm reading at the moment, The Hobbit. (laughs) And the more I listened to it, I thought, he set The Hobbit, or one little bit of The Hobbit, to music. That's incredible. And that was my first experience, really, I think, that I have, or first memory I have of of listening to, to Rush. And then from then, I had to just... As, as soon as I left school and got it, got you know started to get money, I bought every Rush album up to that moment that had come out, and uh, I did the same with Genesis as well. When I left school, I bought all theirs as well, and God, I had so many tapes when I left school. It's crazy. I had a similar epiphany, you know, uh, it was with Anthem, you know, and I was like, wow, I'm cool. I wreck. I'm a person who knows the novel that this song is referencing. And so, of course, in middle school, it's like, hey, yeah, I know you like Anthem, but do you know the inspiration for that song? Let me tell you. And right. now listen to it again because you'll hear the, the, uh, the parallels with the novel. You know, it, it made me feel like cool to, to know something so niche like, niche like that. Right. No, until somebody was just... Fountain, <laughs> until somebody was just like, I'm not reading that book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait a minute, you're making a kid read a book? Yeah. That's the thing about Rush, right? They could they can make grade schoolers read books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, on the podcast we ask all of our guests their Rush origin story, and it's so great to hear everybody's story because every single story is different. Uh Martin, that's the first time I've heard anyone mention Rivendell as yeah. their entry point to Rush, and I just think that's incredible. I mean, it's it's probably it's not even one of my favorite songs on that album, but it's just my entry point to to Rush. Mm-hmm. 
This is Dave of Live Life Loud, the Decibolic Podcast, and you're listening to Pods Like Us with Marv. I had a Sony Walkman that I'd gotten for Christmas. I was a newspaper delivery boy in Pittsburgh. So 365 days a year, I was up at like 530 in the morning before school delivering newspapers in the darkness of Pittsburgh in the cold. It was cold all the time. And I remember like listening to moving pictures and like red barchetta. And it was like, you know, I, it was like an otherworldly feeling to have that soundtrack in my neighborhood that was devoid of any life or motion at that hour of the day. That was kind of my uh, science fiction soundtrack to, to being out there in the, in the world in kind of a strange time of day. That's one of my top 10 of their songs as well, by the way. Red Barchetta. Yeah, I love that song. I love the breakdown when it just stops and it goes into that. They've got an incredible groove that just just goes there when the, it's it's the moment. It's is it supposed to be where they're just driving? Is that is that what that's supposed to signify? Is that them just driving at speed? That bit there, but I just love that yeah. bit. It's one of the greatest grooves I've ever heard in music. That is. Well, that's the thing, right? Is that they can catch on to a groove, a nice rock groove. They could do a, a, a crazy song like Red Barchetta. But you can you could dance. I mean, if I were a dancer, I could dance to it, right? I mean, these things are they they lock onto a groove. It's it's incredible, and that's why I think you know. Again, not trying to cover my ass on this, but uh, not having the the prog background. But you know, you're not really dancing to a lot of uh, you know, you know, old Genesis. Do you know what I mean? Like there's they definitely are great songs, but they not they don't catch a groove. For me, anyway, mm. the same way that Rush does. Except maybe for Roundabout, which uh, that was well, amazing yeah, right. when Getty did Roundabout with Yes. Yeah, that was. I love that. that. Was. Yeah, but see, if I'm going to dance, I, you know, no offense, guys, but I want there to be girls to dance with. And those, those <laughs> well, are few and far between in every Rush concert. Yeah. I dance like no one's watching because no one <laughs> ever is. So. <laughs> so my favorite Rush album would be, if I had to pick one, would be Moving Pictures. How about uh, all of your three's favorites? Uh, we'll start with Greg, actually, the co-host. Favorite Rush album? Um, Hold Your Fire, you know, and I know that that's uh, maybe a surprise choice. But again, for me, I, I couldn't I couldn't separate the experience of my life from Rush at that point. And I remember the night I purchased, it was a cassette. You know, I remember the night I purchased that cassette. I was with friends. We were in the city. Um, we were suburban kids, but we had a night out in the city. And I, our mom had dr- literally dropped us off in a city neighborhood in Pittsburgh. We went to a downtown record shop, which was cool. And Hold Your Fire just come out. And I was like, man, you know, so to me, it was like my emerging independence. I was navigating around in a city and I was choosing music. And boy, wasn't I a sophisticate. And so, uh, you know, that that uh, really was cool. And I, and I liked having... Amy Mann on that track. And I thought it was yeah. unique and cool that, you know what, this is the first person they've invited to participate in that way. And I thought, man, this is cool. And until that episode that you guys did about that album, I didn't know that she was on two of the songs. Hmm. Did, did I? No, Steve, no, I don't either. What, what other song is she on? Steve? Steve? What other song was she on? I forget now. What did I say? Let me pull up the track list. I don't remember what you said. <laughs> she's on. The, she's buried remember. in. She's buried in. in the I don't remember now. I don't remember now. See, I should listen to my own my own work. Yeah, 
<laughs> well, I'm going to go back and listen to that episode for sure. Is, is Jerry just told us which one it was? No, did I? No. I don't think so. It's, it's, I, think I, I, it, I think I'll, t- I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jerry. I was going to say, I think it's just buried in one of the songs. Like you could, you can't even hear it, but she's on it. Yeah, so. it was, it was background vocals, whatever it was. We'll have to go back and check it out. I'm going to tell you what my, Prime mover, is it? Prime mover. There you go. Yeah. There you go. She could be that that ethereal voice at the beginning. That's possible. Yeah. Or not. So my my favorite Rush album, <laughs> my favorite Rush album is Moving Pictures, Martin. Mm. Yeah. Because it was my entry point for Rush. I mean, I know a lot of people's favorite is Moving Pictures, but you're just not going to get a better album in general. Forget Rush album. Yeah. But top to bottom those seven songs are amazing and will always be my favorite rush album jer same with me that's it's moving pictures it's just a fan it's just like steve said side one is Mm -hmm. one of the greatest sides album sides in rock history it's so hard to find four songs that are as good as those four songs in a row in in that sequence it's just untouchable it's, it's almost like that. a transitional album as well because the it's almost like the transitioning from the the band that were i'm going to use that word again prog pre- previous to that it's almost like it's mm. like i said from there and then after that they become something else they, they've always got these steps in their career where after so long they'll, they'll have a transitional album like um 2112 is the transition from the old rush to what came next. And then I suppose after that, the next transition would be moving pictures. And then um, maybe uh, hold your fire, I guess, would be the next transition. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's one of the other great things that they they never rested on their laurels. I mean, they could have made moving pictures for the rest of their careers. And why would they? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they they had so many different ideas and they were restless creativity. Creativity. What where am I looking for? Creatively. And um so why would you want them to to stop? You know, may not appreciate everything, but at least they were, you know, moving about. I don't I, they weren't stagnant. I didn't don't want my artists mm-hmm. to be stagnant, you know what I mean? I don't want to read the same book over and over again or hear the same song over and over again. I do um, wish they'd stayed committed to their kimonos, though. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. <laughs> fashion never changes. You should. I asked my mom, that off. "Can I get a kimono, mom?" And she was like, "What are you talking about?" Well, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, let me show you this picture. Yeah, she was like, "No, can I have these tight not. pants, please?" I, I think she thought it was like a like that was like a, a, a movie cover for like a pornography or something like those three <laughs> yeah. kimonos standing there. And she was very shaken when I showed her that picture. Like a romance like, no, novel. No, no, mom, mom, it's music. It's music. You know, yeah. it's a rock and roll <laughs> romance novel. Yeah, well, you're looking at men in silk robes, Greg. Okay. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> yes, and and I'd like one. <laughs> I'd like a kimono of my own. Thank you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've never seen Rush live, and it's the biggest mm. one of the biggest regrets I've got in in life that is not seeing them live. Uh, I had the chance of seeing them at Sheffield Arena when a friend of mine asked me and I couldn't get the time off to go and watch and I really wish I'd have just rung in sick and pretended that I was sick and gone to watch them to be honest 
Uh, what about your own experiences with, with Rush? Uh, Steve, is there any standout moment you've seen Rush live? Because I know you and Jerry have seen Rush tons of times live. Yeah, uh, we saw the. I saw them, I believe, 28 times. And I think there were two shows that I went to that Jerry didn't. So uh, that was for Jerry at 26. Uh, my standout show would, would have to be the two Jones Beach shows we saw. Jones Beach is a venue on Long Island, just outside of New York City, and it's on the water. And the sound there is just incredible. And the setting is incredible. And to me, those were the two rush shows that Jerry and I saw that just blew me out of the water. And of course we were close to the water. So that just made it <laughs> more fantastic. Uh, do you agree, Jer? Yeah. Cause the first time was, what was the tour where they first played the analog kid, Steve? Was that, Oh, see, this is, these are the specifics that you're like, putting me on the spot. This is, I know this is why we're not real rushed fans. <laughs> well, no, but the fact that you guys could even attempt to, to make that reference <laughs> again, puts you at the 98th percentile, in my opinion. And then the second time it was, I think it was the counterparts tour. Hmm. Maybe let's say, but then the second time was the time machine tour yes. where they played, um, moving pictures in its entirety. Yeah, which was oh, that's cool. amazing. Wow. Just just because, um, you know, the solo on Limelight is my favorite Alex solo. Mm. But that night, again, something with the, I don't know if it was the water, the people, <laughs> I don't know what was in the air. He played this solo, like, like his heart, like he was just bleeding all over his strings. It was the most amazing. So maybe it had more to do with me hearing the album. <laughs> but then for him... But it was definitely one of the best solos I've ever heard anybody play. Um, but then again, you know, the R40 tour was simply the, one of the most amazing stage presentations I've ever seen at a rock show. It was in incredible. The first time we saw it, I was so enamored of, of the set list that I didn't even notice things were changing behind them. I was just so into the songs and the the choices and this, the, just everything about it. And then we saw them again, like a, a couple of nights later. And then I paid attention to the, what was going on behind them. And it was just the most fantastic thing I'd ever seen. It was such a, it, it mean, it, I guess at the time, nobody knew it was going to be their last tour. But if you could definitely tell, I think, from what was happening behind them, that it was going to be their last tour. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of the uh, the interview that you both did with the uh, the violinist who was on that tour and on mm -hmm. the was it was he on the previous tour as well, and uh, that that was yes. a great that was a great uh, interview. Then, thanks. I I, yeah, I thought it came out pretty good too. Jonathan Dinklage. Yeah. Very. And that yourself? was an, that was another of those Rush concert experiences that I will never forget is seeing Jonathan Dinklage play losing it on that final tour. Mm -hmm. So emotional and. Just so great to see Rush do that song for the, what, five times they did it in their career. And Jerry and I were there for two of those, which is amazing to me. And then to hear him tell the story about playing it that first night we saw him, where he he was so nervous, you know, because he told the story about how he got into Rush. He was a young violinist and he loved Rush, but then he heard, uh, you know, losing it. 
electric violin and he had just gotten into the electric violin so he had learned the song when he was like 14 years old and awesome. played it the first day he got the album he learned how to play that whole solo and he would play it and 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 then he got to play it with them and he said he stepped up on stage and he doesn't even remember mm. playing the song because he was just went into a different kind of headspace where he didn't even play do you know what i mean he wasn't consciously experience. yeah he wasn't consciously playing and if you it, with that in mind you could definitely tell when we saw because it was it was incredible watching him play this solo he was so into it and to know that he was basically not even in the room when he was playing it just really made the memory even that much more better hey this is brian with concerts that made us podcast and you're listening to pods like us a great show about other great shows. What about yourself, Greg? You know, have you, you've seen you've seen Rush live. You know, anything? like in the teens, I, I will confess to not have kept an exact count. But uh, there was a flurry in the '80s and early '90s. You know, when I was in junior high, high school, and college, where I went to Penn State, and we would drive to Philly, or we would drive to Cleveland, or we would drive to Pittsburgh on the same tour. So, in the teens. Um, but, you know, for me, it was that first concert seeing them. Um, you know, as Steve and Jerry d- described, uh, you know, I was 15. My two closest friends um, uh, were 15 as well. Our mom dropped us off in downtown Pittsburgh. We were like, no, mom, drop us like several blocks. This is close enough. We're, we'll walk the rest of the way. We don't want to see, you know, we don't want anyone seeing our mom dropping us off in, in her Buick Regal. Right. And so uh, it was just, it was, it was amazing. Uh, we, um, I, I felt like an adult. Um, who was exploring my artistic interests and uh, and felt empowered. It was cool, you know. And then the the other, I don't know if you guys have any memorable opening acts for Rush, but I, I discovered Eric Johnson on go by oh. going to a Rush show, mm-hmm. you know, like um, the opening chords of Cliffs of Dover, where like we were still kind of finding our seats when Eric Johnson was playing, and then Cliffs of Dover came on. I was like, wow, what is this? And it was. I was like, man, this you know, Russia tracks like cool friends, you know. <laughs> so it was uh, it was cool. Yeah, I think that the best opening band for me was Primus. Oh my God, Les oh Claypool. God, I mean, awesome. two t- t- those two bassists in the same building. My God, you know. Yeah, and there's a stories of them on that tour and the the first tour they were on with them in the second tour, where they would have a daily jam session. The two <sighs> bands they'd meet in the parking yeah. lot, uh, like four o'clock in the afternoon, and people would bring you know acoustic guitars and stuff like that but you know Les Claypool he'd he bring a you know a natural gas tank and bang it you know what I mean like they had the craziest craziest jam sessions where with no holes barred anything goes and this, the, the six of them would just sit around and, and play for an hour and then go have dinner I would have been if I was on that Incredible. road crew that's when yeah. I would take my, my cigarette break Sit on top of a <laughs> sit on top of a bus and watch that for an hour. You'd wish they'd recorded that, wouldn't you? And then having I this, know. Like, this yeah. bonus disc on one of these live things Jeez. where they just jam. That that'd yeah. be that'd amazing, be awesome. incredible. Because because unfortunately, Russia is the sort of band where uh, you, you don't actually get any outtakes or any songs that didn't make it or anything like that. That the one of those bands where they, they go in. And they go in with what they end up coming out with. There's there's no nothing there for us to 
you know, grab on to that's, that's not come out already. Yeah. But Getty said every song took maximum effort. So can't put effort into something that's not going to see the light of day. Yeah, and if a song wasn't working, they just wouldn't complete it. They'd just scrap it, and that would be the end of it. Yeah, and there's a it's, – it's commendable in a way where, you know, even those scraps, you know, some bands, should we say, <clears throat> like like the Beatles, for instance, or whatever, might, might, might milk that for all they can get for people who will just buy any old mm-hmm. tat, should we say. Um, whereas Rush – Stand by the guns and just say the idea didn't idea didn't work. We thought it was rubbish. Why should we give it to people when we thought it was rubbish? You know, right? Yeah. Which why is, give the baby steps? Yeah. Getting there because they did rework songs, and obviously they re- they must have recorded them. But who who wants to hear that, right? <laughs> who wants <laughs> to hear them? Who wants to hear the song as it wasn't working? That doesn't sound like a good idea to me. So going back to the show. Is there a structure to the show? Uh, do you structure each episode according to what it's going to be about? Because you do episodes about the albums and then you'll do interview episodes and then you'll do episodes where you're talking about your favourite songs and I think you've done favourite album covers as well. Yeah, I think. Uh, not yet. No, we haven't done that one yet. That's a good mm, idea. That's a fun show. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Hold on. Hold on. Let me get to write that down. <laughs> you, you could get you on as a uh, as a guest to actually discuss the album oh, covers yeah. and then For... find out what his favourites are as well. There you go. Yeah. There you From go. Your mouth to God's ears. I've got... <laughs> yes. For a long so, time, I wanted to get a hold your fire tattoo. You know, the, the guy juggling the, the flaming balls. Yeah, yeah. But I could never find it. I did settle on a fly-by-night tattoo, though, eventually. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, the structure, we, we pretty much try and just do uh, a, a short intro for each episode. Uh, Jerry and I talk for 30 seconds. And then if, uh, if I have a Twitter poll to talk about, we talk about that. If Jerry gets an email, well, we, we do an email every, every week now. We get so yeah. many emails. So we, we choose an email to read and discuss that. And then we get right into either our topic or our guest. Um, just from listening to podcasts myself, I appreciate it when the podcast gets into the the meat of the topic right away. So we try and do that within five minutes and and try and not steer it in a different direction and go off on a tangent for 20 minutes because for me personally, I don't want to hear that. So I think that our listeners also don't want to hear that. So we we get right to the guest or the topic at hand right away. And yeah. uh, that's that's pretty much it. And then after after the interview or after the topic, we do kind of a five ten minute postscript, and and that's that. Yeah. So is there a lot of editing involved then in the show to edit out any tangents that you might go off on that you feel doesn't serve the episode? Absolutely. Yeah. We we edit it afterwards. Uh, if we go off on a tangent, like you said, that we didn't feel added anything to the conversation. We cut that out again. I'm just thinking about the listener and uh, I like to think of it. Someone commuting to work. It's a 45 minute commute. Try to keep the episode as close to 45 minutes as possible. Sometimes we veer closer to an hour. Sometimes it's a little shorter than that, but we want, want our listener to get a, a nice experience in 45 minutes to an hour. And, and, um, Join us again next week. Smart. Yeah, you know, I have to say, Steve is the actual uh, professional, as I said before, <laughs> in the duo here. 
So he edits the, uh, he says we, he's using the royal we, but it's not the royal we, it's him. <laughs> he edits the whole thing and he makes, he's always made the best choices. I can't, I don't think I've ever disagreed with anything he's ever done. So it's, it's all, if it sounds good, it's all him. If it sounds bad, it's all me. <laughs> Go on then, Steve. So how, how do you actually record and then edit the show together? Well, what, when we started out, Jerry would come here to my house and we would record together. Uh, but when COVID in the started time. in the before times, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, so now what we do when COVID started, Jerry got his own equipment and I've got my own equipment. So we record via zoom, but we don't use the zoom audio. We record our own audio on our own equipment in our, in our separate homes. Yeah. And then we use the zoom audio for the most part for the guest. And what I'll do is I'll take each of those tracks. I take Jerry's track. I take my track. I take the guest track and then I mix those together and I cut out, you know, cut out the room noise, cut out all the, all the extraneous stuff. And if we talk over each other, I clean that up. So I make it sound as perfect as I can and probably do more editing than I should to clean it up. But I think it, it makes the podcast sound better and uh, just being a, a radio geek and an audio geek, I want to make it sound as, as good as possible. So that's what I try to do. You guys yeah, sound great. Great voices. Both of you. Thank you. Oh, yeah. That's something I have never heard. Thank you very much. No, seriously. <laughs> I mean, I was listening to you this morning. I was like, wow, this is really, I obviously I love the, the subject matter, but it is really listenable. And I love the pace of the, of the show and, and you guys, you know, you go into depth, but I, I didn't detect any like rabbit holes you were going down. It sounded really good. Yeah, Steve has a tendency to take out my rabbit holes, which is great <laughs> because he'll he'll take. It's so funny. At least once every third episode, I'll listen to it and I'll say, "Man, it sounds great as usual." And then he'll be like, "Yeah, sorry, I had to cut out that thing you started talking about, whatever, whatever, whatever." And I'm like, "I don't even remember saying that, so <laughs> it's fine with me that you cut it out because it's it sounds so good." You know what I mean? It's all the he's he's just very good at what he does. So I, if I complained about it, I'd be a total jerk. Our our host and producer Tim is the same way. You know, there are things that my wife is is on the show as well, and she's much more observant than me, and she'll say like. Oh yeah, Tim removed that where we were talking over each other. I'm like, I, I don't even remember what I say on the show, honestly. <laughs> so I listen to it the next day. And I think psychologically, that's my protection for myself because I say such crazy shit. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, he just Tim just makes it sound seamless. He's perfect, and that's an unabashed plug for my host and producer Tim. <laughs> I think what else, what else helps with your show, uh, the Rush Podcast, is um, the music. That, that bass is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So what, what's his name again? Is, is his name Lex? Did his name is Lex. Uh, he's a, a childhood friend of ours. We went to high school with him and we've known Lex for almost 40 years as well. And he's an amazing bassist. And when we started the podcast, uh, we, we didn't want to use Rush's music for our intro and outro uh, for legal reasons. So we thought, uh, what can we do? And I asked Lex to, to record the baseline for something for nothing. And he did that and it sounded great. And then as we progressed, I kept tapping Lex and saying, Hey, uh, maybe you could do the baseline for this song. How about do the baseline for that song? 
And now I pretty much bug him every week uh, to do the baseline for us. And, and he loves doing it because he loves learning a new rush song. And um, I think it really adds, adds to the show and he's a huge part of it. Yeah, and he tries to get the right effect as well. That that he makes it almost sound like it was the original bass from from then as well by having the right uh, distortion on some of the songs or 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 not on some other songs. Um, but um, yeah, does so? Do you actually pick up pick the song that he's going to do the bass for yourself, or does he just throw you occasionally bass lines that he'll think, oh, you might like this one and. So yeah, how does that work? Well, sometimes, sometimes I give him a specific song I want. For instance, uh, we had Jared Schofer on a few weeks ago who was walking across the United States to raise money for cancer. And I wanted Marathon. I thought that would be great for the show. So I asked for that specific song. But when we were talking about a specific album, I would give him, here are the four songs we're going to talk about. You pick one. And then I'd let him pick the one he he was most comfortable playing or, or wanted to, to give a shot. So it depends. And you've had some really good guests on, like, you know, you, you've already mentioned Jonathan. Um, how do you go about setting those up? It, it really depends. It, it So it depends on who's listen we've had a couple of people on who actually actively listen to the show and i think they were following us on twitter so we're just like well this guy's listening to the show let's just get him on the show <laughs> why not right um but you know there's uh, writers writers are always looking to talk about their books they want to sell books so we have writers on uh we talked to uh, steve how did we get dale heslip well, Dale, uh, Dale directed um, Time Stand Still, the documentary Time Stand Still, their final concert tour. I found Dale's website and his email address was on his website. So oh, I just shot him go. an email and there you go. <laughs> but but what we found is a guest like Dale Heslip led us to one of our other guests, which was Miller, who was the field director for Time Stand Still. And I asked Dale after we had him on, he was so thrilled with uh, the interview that we did. I said, who else could we talk to that, that you think would be good? And he said, Miller and boy, was he right. Miller was fantastic. He was a great guest. So it seems like a lot of our guests are helping us either helping us get other guests or just the fact that they've been on the show adds some, some cloud for us. And when they see, wow, they talked to Dale Heslip. Well, maybe they, they should talk to me too. So they say yes. And you'd be surprised at what people will say if you ask them. <laughs> Sometimes they say yes. <laughs> yeah, right on. I don't think I've ever gotten an email back from someone saying no. I've got, I haven't gotten email, emails back, that's for sure. But nobody's just like, no, I'm not doing your stupid show. <laughs> if, they're gonna, if people are like, oh, that sounds very interesting. And then with Rush, you know, the guest pool is is endless. Mm-hmm. It's really endless. There's so many things out there that are Rush related. So many books, so many celebrities who have professed their love for Rush. Yeah. So many fans who are just interesting or have interesting jobs. 
uh, you know, we had early on, we had a woman um, named Liz Swan who wrote a piece about um, Neil passing away for Psychology Today. Hmm. Hmm. So we had her on and that was a great, that was one of our first interviews and was absolutely fantastic. I mean, people, people are interesting. Find an interesting person and you could talk to them all day, it seems. G'day, g'day. This is Matty C from the Astros Fantasy Football Podcast way down in Australia. And we love getting to listen to Marv meet new podcasters from all over the world here on the Pods Like Us podcast. It'd be nice if you could get an interview with one of the producers, maybe like a, like a Peter Collins or somebody, and then ask yes, them you know, the behind the scenes of mm-hmm. the information that nobody actually ever, ever knows about, you know, what actually goes on in the inner sanctum of the studio with Rush. Yes. There's like a, it seems to be like a, there's a blood brain barrier for guests. Do you know what I mean? Like we could seem at this point can only go so high. I don't know. If, I don't know if we're ever going to get through the barrier to get like the, I don't want to say the big names, but you know, like you said, the people who are intimately involved or were involved in the day to day of the creation of some of these albums. I don't know if we're going to, get there hopefully we will keep my fingers good, crossed i think the good thing is that that well i'd say it's good but also it's yeah so you've got lots of podcasts about certain subjects like the, you know, the beatles you can you can you know it's like you can throw a stone in the pool and 50 or 60 beatles podcasts will suddenly appear whereas with rush you, you you're at, you you're the only rush podcast that i've actually come across so I think that adds adds to that, but also the fact that as you're going, you're getting a a larger um, audience, and I think it's the same with 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 Bad Council and with other shows that as you go on, your the knowledge or the appreciation of your show grows, and then more people get to hear about it. So eventually it might come to a stage where, you know, you've had this person on, you've had that person on, and they might mention to somebody else who's a bit higher up mm-hmm. in that level. And you, 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 you might get to that level at some point soon, hopefully. You know, that's, that's how it goes, I think. Yeah, definitely. Well, we have, we're nearing 100 episodes. It's awesome. So... That in itself is... That's a commitment, for sure. Yeah. yeah. We definitely get, you know, um, emails. I get a lot of emails. The thing about, I think, if you're talking about, like, Rush being discussed weekly, people are thirsty for it. There are, I get emails from people all the time, and very emotional emails, from people who are like, I never had a Rush friend. I never had some nobody in my friend group, my wife, my family. They don't understand. You know what I mean? It's like they don't understand what it's like to be a Rush fan. And so to hear us talking about Rush, I guess, in the way that we do, they love it because they feel like they're part of the conversation, which, again, is such an incredible, incredible uh, compliment. And then we get... Some of the emails that we get are from people who have lost their their rush friend over the you know someone they passed away from one thing or another and they they miss the conversations they had and they feel like they can that they're part of the conversation too so in a in a strange way and again a humongous compliment 
some people listen to the show to be reminded of their friends and these good times that they had with the band and they feel like they're part of the conversation. So, I mean, if we could do just those two things for people and, you know, I would do it until we couldn't do it anymore. Well, I, I can attest as a listener, guys, you know, and a Rush fan that you're, you're nailing those two things. I did feel part of the conversation and it did fill me, fill me with a, a joyful sense of nostalgia. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate that all of my Rush friends, and I have many, I'm lucky to have many, are still with me, but, but they're far away. You know, in Rush isn't the topic of conversation that we always bring up when we talk, but it, it is walking down memory lane for me in such a good way to hear you guys talking about your top 10 list. And I'm definitely a fan now. I'm going to go back and listen to more episodes. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Greg. That's such a great compliment. Seriously. Yeah, yeah I mean, the thing is that um, Steve and I were just talking. Steve gave me a great piece of advice at the beginning. And he said to just talk to him like we're talking. <laughs> Don't hmm. try, ignore, the, ignore that you've got a microphone in front of your face and headphones on. And I talk to him. And we talk about Rush. And, and there you go. That's the show. <laughs> That's the show in a nutshell. <laughs> so... Greg, have you uh, have you introduced uh, Katie to, to to the music of Russia or um, fan? No, she's not a fan, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and 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 she's not uh, anti-Rush, but um, you know, yeah, she just um, she just I don't think she quite she loves how much I love them. You know, I was I think we were listening to Subdivisions in the car one time. <clears throat> she indulges my, but I, I get emotional. I you know I was trying to explain to her the personal meaning of subdivisions and how, how closely that aligned with my personal experience. And I get choked up and she thinks that's adorable, but I don't ever catch her listening to rush behind my back. of The band far did a really great version of uh, subdivisions. When, when Neil died, he did. A, Who did? Uh, Jonah Matranga from the band far. Okay, he cool. actually did a cover version of Subdivisions, just him and an acoustic guitar that, that mm. was really good. I think he did it a day or so after, after Neil had nice. died because he was saying that that was an important song to him particularly because he was saying that he always felt like um, a bit like the one that was left out uh, in high school. And he said, so that song fitted him perfectly back then and it spoke to him back then. And yeah, he did a great version of that. It's amazing. They're in, you know, what you were saying. There's all sorts of musicians that that you wouldn't think of that were, you know, affected by by the music of, of Rush. You know, you wouldn't think that the lead singer of of of, a, of an alternative rock band like Far, you know, that were a bit emo based almost, that they would have that influence. But there you go. Just peerless, you know, musicianship, you know. So I think music, mu serious musicians of any genre, you can't not respect the sound that those three guys produced and produced live, in my Sorry. opinion. Anyway, what podcast do you listen to in your time, you know, away from your own podcast, Steve? Well, as I mentioned, um, my favorite podcast is Radio Lab. NPR produces that. It's great all the time. 
I listen to baseball podcasts. I listen mm. to uh, Rolling Stone Music Now. One of our previous guests, Brian Hyatt, hosts that podcast. It's terrific. Um, and I try and li- uh, lately I've been trying to listen to other podcasts that are similar to ours, just to just to see how we're doing and how how other podcasts are handling similar subject matter. So that's what I listen to, Jer. Yeah, I'm looking at my list right now. I've kind of pared it down recently, but I'm listening to Science Versus, which is a science podcast where they just, you know, try to dispel myths about different um, scientific topics. Um, wait, wait, don't tell me. It's a comedy podcast. Very funny. Radio Lab. Uh, Stuff You Should Know, which is another podcast I've been listening to for, yeah, I don't know how long. Has it been around for 10 years? However long it's been around is as long as that is. That is is one of the originals from back in the day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, 99% Invisible, uh, Hidden Brain, Through Line, uh, My Favorite Murder, of course, is a big one. Mm. A little, I I don't remember the names of them because they only run for like maybe like six or 10 episodes here and there about different, you know, historical atrocities, (laughs) for lack of a better word. Um, and another one from the um, 99% Visible Camp called uh, What Trump Can Teach Us About Constitutional Law. <laughs> That's an interesting title. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's monthly. And it was, um, they're still trying to keep it going now that Trump isn't around. But for four years, they did a monthly podcast. He's around. He's around. Yeah, he's, he's around. That's true. <laughs> he's lurking. It's definitely, if you want to learn... Uh, U.S. constitutional law and Supreme Court cases involved in them. That's the podcast for you. <laughs> that does sound interesting, actually. So I'm just waiting for that lorry to drive past. Sure. <laughs> hey there, this is Bobby with the Rock Guys podcast, and you are listening to Marv Smooth on the Pods Like Us podcast. Check him out. So I, I will ask Greg now, and Greg listens to almost as many podcasts as i do probably yeah more hmm. so off you go very few comedy podcasts you know uh you, you guys if you more of you listen to our show like i i'm not a laugh out loud kind of guy ironically but um i, I do love, like true crime uh i do like like the unexplained is a great podcast i was into lore for a long time my introduction to podcasts was the original serial uh, oh, you know, yeah. I, I love that. Well, Isn't I do that? listen to one podcast that really does make Katie and I laugh, which is How Did This Get Made? Paul yeah. Shear. Oh, yeah, uh, I listen to yeah. that too. Oh, my God. That, that is a funny, funny podcast. And then, yeah. you know, Marv and I are part of this great independent podcast community. And so I uh, like Concerts That Made Us is awesome. Uh, Xander and Stone, the Science and Supernatural podcast is amazing. Um, and I won't say any more because I'm going to offend all of my podcast friends whose podcasts I don't mention. So they're, <laughs> they're out there. Follow us on Instagram on Bad Counsel and you'll see us giving uh, respect to all the great independent podcasts out there. We're super proud to be part of that community. Yeah, I haven't listened. I used to listen to um last podcast on the left. I haven't listened oh. to that one in a long time either. Yeah. Let's get back to that. I'll give a shout out to a podcast called The Rock Guys. With, oh, yeah. uh, with Bob. Bob and that that is that is a great show where it's a relatively short show but each episode it'll pick a different band from the rock genre and give you what you need to know as an introduction about those bands and 
it's it's really good at what he does there and he's he's always he's a bit excitable, isn't he, Greg? He is. Yeah. Good dude. Yeah, I chatted with him recently. Marv, may may uh can I be indulged and uh just shout out my castmates on Bad Council? You know, Jack recently appeared on concerts that made us and we all listened scrupulously to see if he would give us our proper due and credit, you know, as his castmates. It's like, you know, uh, it's, it's like a band member doing an interview by it without the other guys. So I, I have to say, guys, my Bad Council castmates, Tim, our show's host and producer is amazing. Jack is kind of my comedic counterpart, you know, where I'm, I, they say that I take uh, crazy situations. No, I, I take normal situations and make them crazy. And Jack takes crazy situations and tries to normalize them. And then Katie, my beautiful wife, and offers us the female perspective and frankly allows us to get away with saying a lot of misogynist stuff because she laughs, laughs, you know, so it could be that bad. So thank you, Marv. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure meeting you, and I really am a fan and can't wait to listen to more. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And for me, it's been fun because I've been able to chat about Rush, which I've not been able to do for for years because, like Greg, I used to have people that I talked to about Rush, but because I've moved away from there, I don't get to talk to them so much. So it's been a lot of fun to be able to do that. Well, thanks for having us. We really appreciate it, Martin. Thank and nice to meet much. you, Greg. Thank you, guys. I'll yeah. be in touch on Instagram. I, I, seriously, I'm a fan. I'm, I just looked up that article uh, by Ms. Swan. And as soon as we hang up, I'm going to listen to Xanadu and read that article. Thank you. Oh, cool. So what advice would you give to people starting a podcast for the first time then, Steve? I would say talk about what you love. That's what made our podcast enjoyable for me and I think Jerry as well. We're talking about something we love to talk about. Uh, the second piece of advice I would give is listen to other podcasts, find out what you like about other podcasts and try and try and emulate those. So those would be my my two pieces of advice. Yeah. Jerry? I think it would just be, like I said before, just have a conversation. You know, unless it's a scripted show where you're writing things down, pre-recording them and doing... And those podcasts are great too, but if, if, you're having, if you have two people, that's the other thing, I would suggest two people or someone to talk to, at least someone to talk to every episode. Uh, maybe your cat, I don't know if that would work as a podcast, but if you're talking to somebody else, just talk to them, you know, forget the fact that people might be listening because if you can be genuine with somebody else, the listener is going to pick up on that. They're going to pick up on the, the friendship between the two people or the camaraderie between the two people or this, that the two people like each other and it's going to make them feel uh, at ease and make them feel like people say, like they're part of the conversation too. And I'll ask Greg if he's got any advice for people as well. Um, well, I mean, Steve and Jerry's advice is amazing. You know, you got to be passionate about it. This is uh, this is definitely a labor of love. And, and what, you know, uh, Steve, we actually, my friends and I did a podcast for three years before we did Bad Counsel, and it was our, about our fantasy baseball league. And oh, nice. And baseball in general. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I can great. swear that Steve Phillips used to steal our sound bites, you know, because we were, we were kind of quirky. We would talk about how handsome some of the players were and if that improved their performance on the field. <laughs> and, and we'd hear Steve Phillips make these random references. I'd be like, what the heck? 
you know, for us, it was, we, we just realized that just put it out week after week, put your content mm-hmm. out there. Don't be too precious about it. Yeah. Um, you'll have good shows. You'll have other shows that you don't love as much, but honestly, we put stuff out that wasn't exactly my favorite show, but then I come to appreciate it more, you know, and I see the humor in it. And so, um, it's just keeping that schedule, you know, uh, religiously. Steve, do you think Mike Ford looks better with or without the mustache? <laughs> uh, without the mustache, for sure. Bro. He can't pull. He can't pull it off. I don't know what it is, but it, it it didn't work. It didn't work for me. I think he was trying to channel his inner Don Mattingly, and then when he didn't hit, you know, mustache came off. Smart move. Too much <laughs> watching Magnum from back in the day. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry I'm laughing. I, that, I have you? no idea who that is, so I can't <laughs> even add to the conversation. Mike Ford now plays for the Scranton Wilkesbury Red Barons, which tells wow. you how the mustache worked out. That's <laughs> a deep cut for someone who plays for the Scranton Wilkesbury. What's it? Muskrats? What'd you say? Uh, oh, Rail Riders, not Red Barons. They're the oh, Rail right. Riders. Yeah. Oof. Wow. They used to be the Red Barons. That's B side material right there, man. <laughs> It's uh, headline material, you know. Uh, Scranton Wilkesbury rails the other team. <laughs> <laughs> I can see an offshoot show now with Greg and yeah. Steve talking baseball. Absolutely. Yeah, talking like baseball. I love it as much as I love Rush. <laughs> so anyway, where can people find the uh, show, and how can they get in touch with you, Steve? Uh, well, you can find us on the podcast platform that hosts us, Podbean. Also, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, anywhere you find podcasts, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. And yeah. if you want to get in touch with Jerry, he handles our emails. It's therushcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at RushFanCast. We're on Instagram. Jerry handles that at the Rush Fancast. Oh, the Rushcast. Sorry, Instagram or the <laughs> Rushcast. So, um, reach out to us. Send us an email. Let let us know what you think of the podcast and check us out. We'd love you to. Yeah, my favorite thing for people to send us is pictures of their Rush denim jackets. Uh, so, if you nice. have a Rush denim jacket with something on the back, just send me a picture of it. And I'll post it. Doesn't matter what it is. The more patches, the better. Right. <laughs> or a painting of uh, a Fly by Night Owl. That's a that's a big one. I'll send you my my fly by night inspired tattoo. Yes. Oh, nice. Please do. Yeah, yeah Jerry. My, my tattoo artist. I wanted to put the full snow owl landing, and my tattoo artist was like, "That's impossible, Greg. You know, light blue ink. That's not going to look good. You live in South Florida." So he uh, he did a modified little homage. Oh wow, to, that's to cool. With, that the, with nice. the blue in that it. That's awesome. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to thank Greg for for helping. My pleasure, Mark. It's my honor. It was great. Thank you very much. So let people know how they can get hold of of, um, Bad Counsel and how they can get in touch with you. Well, you know, like Steve mentioned, we're on every podcast podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, um, Stitcher, Anchor. Uh, We're on Amazon Music. We're on audible.com. We're on all of those things. And, and uh, starting this weekend, we're going to be on YouTube. So you get to see our oh, nice. faces too. So that'll be good. Um, and then on Instagram, it's bad.council. And each host has their own Instagram page too. And it's our first names, Greg, 
underscore bad dot council or Katie bad dot council, Jack or Tim bad dot council. So new show every Wednesday. Yeah, because you've been doing it with video anyway, haven't you, Mike? When you've been using we have, Riverside, yeah. but you've not actually put them out as video before. We haven't. We're you know we're we're uh, we're a little bit undercover, especially based on the things that we say in our day jobs. But we figured, you know what? If 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 people find us on YouTube and they see us, that's probably a good thing. You know, that means people are, are finding us. You know, so we'll, we'll roll the dice. We're not hurting anybody after all. Yeah, you'll roll the bones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I missed that. Oh, Marv, I, that would have been a perfect line for me. Sorry. Go back and re-edit that, me saying that, please. Well, then you can say it again and I'll edit it in here. <laughs> I guess we'll just roll the bones with that, Steve. I mean, with that. <laughs> All right, never mind. <laughs> and you can find Pods Like Us on any streaming network. And if you go to the marvzone.org in the room, uh, menu there, you'll find a uh, section that says pods like us and there are write-ups about all the episodes and the behind the scenes stories of each of the episodes for you to, to look at if, if you want to listen or read that sort of thing. Anyway, thanks very much guys and great talking to you and thank you everyone for listening and hope you listen again to another episode of pods like us. <laughs>